Thank you for listening to this podcast from Emanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you would like to learn more about Emanuel or find more resources like this one, visit our website at emanuelbirmingham.com. Yeah, we got a few more coming. Um, so while, um, while we're waiting on those to print, um, I need to figure out. So, okay, here's the plan for today. Um, I'm going to kind of very quickly go back over the overview week that a lot of you weren't here for in case, and I also didn't record it, so you'll be lost, I think. Um, and last week I felt the tension of some people feeling kind of disoriented. And so I just want to fly through that. Um, and that's really an overview of where we're going for the next several weeks, okay? And then we'll pick back up from where we left off last week, okay? Um, so what you have in front of you is not the overview, but it's where we started last week and where we're gonna finish this week, Lord willing. Um, and then, uh, and yeah, so that's kind of the plan. So um, these are almost done printing and then I'll pass them out and then I'll pray and then we'll begin. <sighs> okay, you guys ready? Let's pray. Um, Father, thank you so much for this church and for these people and for this place and time that we get to inhabit. And so we just ask that today you would stir up um, a fire and desire to know you and your word and to grow our hunger for theology, um, to make us more informed and well-formed people um, who live among a people with unclean lips and impure hearts, God, that we might be prophetic voices to this generation. Help us today um, to continue that journey and and make a difference in the lives of those that you've placed us around, our families, our uh, neighborhoods, our jobs, and anywhere else that you've placed us. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. This is a full house. This is great to see. Welcome to Equip Class uh, 2023. I just did that because it rhymed. Um, I'm so happy to see you. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, which I think I have, but just in case, my name is Eric Parker, and I am the Director of Theological Formation, and we are talking about public theology. This is what I call Public Theology 101. And we've been walking through the creation story because so much of what it means to think theologically about everything in the public domain really finds its roots in creation. Um, And so we're kind of walking, trying to walk through the big storyline of scripture as our sort of guide, which means that we'll talk about random things uh, because that's how the Bible sort of does. Um, But we just haven't made it out of creation yet. And so um, we started a couple of weeks ago a a section on what I call, not just me, but other people, uh, theological anthropology. Um, Anthropology is the study of man or person. Um, Anthropos is the Greek word for man in the New Testament. And so that's where we get our term anthropology or the discipline of anthropology. And so... um, you know, it's important that we think theologically about it because what can we know about ourselves if we haven't first known what the Bible says about who we are? Um, and so I wanted to um, just do a brief overview that I missed from a couple of weeks ago when I forgot to record. And uh, I don't have the notes in front of you, and I can get these to Jessica for her to put up with the recording. 
Um, but here's kind of the overview for the next few weeks. Um, so theological overview. So de definitions. All right. So we really we're right here right now. Competing conceptions. Um, and then next week we'll start the biblical contours of this you know theological definition, this theological anthropology, and that's going to be made up of really three fundamental you know components: resemblance, representation, and responsibility. Um, which I'll explain more of that when we actually get to that piece next week. Um, and then we'll move to a conversation about how the fall affects us as being made in the image of God, um, how it affects our understanding of theological anthropology. And fundamentally, I would just say that it, uh, the fall distorts and disorders who we are, but it does not um, completely take away what God has made us to be. Um, so we'll kind of walk through a theological overview for the next several weeks, and then that'll shift us to be able to begin talking about the implications or the theological implications of what we've seen here, okay? And so the first implication is that we are dignified. Like if, if this piece right here, the biblical contours, is true, and what the Bible says about it is true, then um, the first implication of that is that we have dignity, and if we have dignity, then that means that we have rights and that we have life. And so we're going to talk about things like where do rights come from and what are they? And I'm going to make the argument that Christianity alone has the explanation for what rights are and where they come from. There is no other worldview that is in existence that can justify the existence of rights. And so I want to, I want to make that case, but I also want to look at other worldviews to talk about that. Um, and then, you know, that naturally then leads to this issue of life. So if we're dignified, then we, you know, have to talk about life. And that's not just, you know, beginning of life, abortion, but that's also things like racism, you know, the living of life. Um, and that's just because that's a relevant topic. And then something like euthanasia, the end of life or physician assisted suicide. Like what ought we as Christians to think about these kind of things? Because they're going to be continuing to... Uh, be relevant and legislated. <laughs> and uh, as people who live in a democratic republic who, who have a say in the administration of our government, right, and the greater levels of access to, um, to equal dignity under the law, then we have to take responsibility and ownership so that more people can flourish. John Piper said that as Christians, we care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. And so a lot of us are like, yeah, absolutely about the eternal suffering, which, yes, that is the most fundamental. Like if you can relieve anyone of any kind of suffering, that is the one that you want to do. But we have dismissed our role and our place in thinking about the all suffering piece. What does it mean to flourish as a person? And so as Christians, we want to have something to think about rights and then how those rights manifest in, as it relates to life, like abortion, racism, and physician-assisted suicide or some form of that. Um, the second theological implication is that we are distinct. So we are dignified, but then second, we are distinct. And that means that we are distinct from one another. So God made us male and female. The question is, what does that mean? And that there's a biological aspect of what it means to be made male and female, but it also, there's a psychological aspect of what it means to be made male and female. 
That is that we are um, gendered, you know, we are, uh, we live in these male or female bodies and there's some corresponding way that we end up thinking about what it means to be a male and that's what we call gender. Now there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of dangerous philosophical sort of underpinnings to the, even the term gender, which we'll talk about when we get there. Um, but I think we can grant for now that we all have a sense of what it means to be male and then we can call, or female, and we can call that gender. Okay, so it, it's abstracted a little bit from the biological. But God made both of those realities, and so what does it mean to think about those well? Um, but we are distinct not only from one another, but we're also distinct from animals. And so there's a great occasion to talk about transhumanism because uh, despite what you may or may not think, um, that's actually like a legitimate option increasingly in our society to think about um, what it means to transgress the boundaries of our given biological humanity, whether that's towards the end of enhancing um, in a kind of an animalistic sort of way, like trying to take on certain features like, um, you know, the eyesight of a tiger or, you know, something like that. Um, or it's in a different direction towards like, you know, think, um, think uh, like RoboCop or something like that, you know, like where you enhance different features of your body um, because you're displeased with how you were made or whatever. Um, you want to be faster, you want to be stronger, you want to be smarter, etc. But we're not just dignified, we're not just distinct, but the third implicate, theological implication of what the Bible says about who we are is made in the image of God is that we are directed. And what I mean is that we are directed toward God or gods. Um, so, you know, no matter where you find yourself in the landscape of history, um, no matter what religion you've had, you've always had some kind of religion up until the... Um, basically the eight, 17th, 18th century when you start to see as a common thing um, something that people call it atheism. And I would still argue that even atheists are directed towards some form of God, even if it's not coded in religious sort of terminology or language. Um, and so idolatry is going to be an important conversation because all of us are directed towards God. But we're also directed not just toward God, but we're directed towards people. Um, and so we'll need to talk about things like marriage and all of its um, distortions. So polygamy, polyamory, and the way that people think about marriage as an oppressive social construct. Like it's not real, it's actually part of the patriarchy holding us down and pushing our society back. Um, and the question is, how did God design marriage so that actually it is it is the foundation of social liberation, both for ourselves and for the people around us. Okay, because again, we're talking about human flourishing. And, um, and then that'll lead us to uh, people, um, so towards one another, uh, towards God, towards people. And then so friendship as a piece of that. All right, so we're going to talk about um, some of what Aristotle said about friendship, but we're going to really hone in on what C.S. Lewis has said about friendship. Has anybody ever read anything from C.S. Lewis in general? Okay, good. I see some head nods. Um, have you ever read The Four Loves that he wrote? Okay, Four Loves. So in The Four Loves, he talks about four Greek words for love, um, and one of them is uh, phileo. And it, this is the friendship or brotherly love. And so he has a whole chapter in there on friendship. And oh, do we need a more clear understanding, more robust theological framework for friendship as the right expression of same-sex relationships. Because we don't have that. And so we distort 
and turn same-sex relationships into something that God never designed them to be, but they do look similar. So there's, there's truth in there that we can grab and reclaim and give a vision for people who maybe struggle to be attracted to people who are of the opposite sex, right? They, they just need a more elevated vision of what it means to live as a person who may never be able to be in an appropriate, um, uh, uh, what do you call it, um, <clears throat> heterosexual relationship but yet can still thrive in um, same-sex relationships in the way that God designed them to. Does that make sense? So we're going to talk about friendship, and then we're going to talk about community. So if we're directed towards people, and, you know, that's, you know, God, then people, so, you know, me and you, and then friendship, and then community, well, we're made to live in community as being made in the image of God. You know, God is Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and for all of eternity, before time ever existed, he's been living with himself in perfect harmony and fellowship, you know, laughing at each other's jokes, that kind of thing, right? Um, we were made in his image, and so we are drawn to be with people. And so what does it mean to, to come together as a people? And that brings up these issues of culture, of the presence of um, sameness, homogeneity, um, and whether that's helpful or harmful, um, and diversity. And, uh, and we're going to talk about sort of what a flourishing society looks like in trying to navigate these culture, homogeneity, and diversity pieces. Because right now our culture is, you know, if, if you think about how America was formed off of uh, e pluribus unum, that's kind of our sort of tagline as America, um, out of the many come one, right? Um, we are now out of the one becoming many again. Um, and so um, is there a principle which we can form culture around that's not biological, that's not racial, that's not gendered, um, that creates a sense of sameness but still allows for diversity? And I think Christianity can speak into that. But, um, but yeah, so, and then we're not just directed towards God, towards people, but we're also directed toward purpose. And, um, oh, there's the notes. Um, and we're going to talk about uh, a theology of, of vocation um, for, uh, for that last one. All right, so the dignity and value of work as being um, part of God's good design for how we are directed. Uh, so, yeah, any just questions about that overview um, of the next several weeks? <clears throat> what do you guys think? You excited about that? Yes? Um, okay, here's a, here's a question. If I can find um, relevant short uh, articles for you to read, like going into our discussion each Sunday, would you read them? Okay, one or two. So I'm not asking you to read like a whole book, but I think it would provide, you know, make you feel more confident sitting here and us, and then maybe even more conversation could be had because you've kind of got like a now touchstone for thinking and talking about it that some of you may have come in with, but then others of you may not from week to week. So is that cool? Could All right. Maybe not, uh, <laughs> unless they pay me a lot more. Um, <laughs> That's funny. That's um, me. When I met Austin, who you know obviously is our beloved pastor, um, that was the context in which I met him. Uh, we both had a job doing that for another pastor, uh, transcribing his sermons for him. Um, so that's a funny coincidence. 
Um, yeah, I'm not going to promise to do that every week, but it will be a goal of mine to give you at least one article. It may not cover everything I would want to cover, but it will just give you something to kind of like start to help you start thinking and stuff. And so um, I would ask that you you really would try to carve out some time to look through that because it'll make this time so much more rich for you and for us together. Um, okay, now we're turning to the sheets. All right, the sheets that everyone should have. Um, and I'll just quickly run through kind of the first page or so to get us caught up to where we should be today. All right. So I opened with this great little quote from John Calvin um, at the beginning of his Institutes, where he says, Nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And he goes on to ask the question of, you know, which one do we start with? Do we start with knowledge of God? Or, so theology, or do we start with anthropology? Um, can you rightly understand God without, you know, first rightly understanding yourself? But then the question is, can you rightly understand yourself if you're made in the image of God? Um, so he kind of has this, you know, dilemma or dichotomy. And I think he ends up saying we have to start with God um, to be able to understand ourselves. Um, and, uh, and so where we went last week was talking about these competing conceptions of personhood. So you have a biological kind of framing of what it means to be a person. Um, and that's going to be really relevant to when we talk about abortion. Um, and then we talked about the theological framing of what it means to be a person. And so we looked at what Pelagius says. We looked at what Augustine says. So we don't endorse Pelagius, but we do endorse Augustine. And we looked at Calvin. We do endorse a lot of what Calvin says. Um, or you could have put Luther there as well. They would have had similar things to say, albeit different for sure. Um, and then we, were, uh, we started the philosophy piece. So there's the biological uh, definition or conception of what it means to be a person. There's the theological conception of what it means to be a person. And then there is the philosophical. We looked at Aristotle. We looked at Cicero. And we were about to start with Descartes. And that's where we had to end last time. And that's where we're picking up this morning. Um, questions before I start now? With, uh, with Descartes. <clears throat> Good? Okay. Um, so w when we looked last week at um, Aristotle and, um, let's see, yeah, when we looked at Aristotle and Cicero, they actually had a lot of really helpful things to say when they thought about what it means to be a person that um, I think we'll end up carrying over when we sort of get to our discussion of what the biblical contours are. But when we get to Descartes, we have to begin taking a little bit of a, a, a turn, a divergence. Um, so Rene Descartes, which I know his name doesn't look like it would say Descartes, but just trust me on that one. Um, Rene Descartes, uh, you know, from his book, um, The Meditations on First Philosophy, he lived from 1596 to 1650. Um, so he was kind of towards the beginning of what we call the Enlightenment period. Um, I don't know if that's the best term for it, but his essential framing of the person is the thinking thing. All right, I've, I've, I've seen that read somewhere. I think I might have just made that up. I don't think I did. Um, sometimes you read a lot and you just forget where you get stuff from. Um, so the thinking thing, that's essentially who we are. Um, do you feel like the thinking thing, just by the curiosity? Anybody feel like you're just a thinking thing? No? Okay. All right. Um, the, the reason why, you know, he gets this kind of, um, this sort of phrasing is because of his famous dictum, um, 
and I'm not going to pronounce this right because, you know, um, yeah. So, but we'll try it anyways. Uh, ergo cogito, ergo sum. And that basically translates as, I think, therefore I am. All right, we, I think, have all heard this phrase before, right? Um, you may not have known that it was Descartes, but he, um, he said, I think, therefore I am. Why did he say, I think, therefore I am? Um, because you have to understand the time that he was living in. Descartes was coming um, after the Reformation has been well underway. The Reformation was when Martin Luther uh, nailed his uh, 95 theses on the door at Wittenberg, and he basically had all of these complaints against the Catholic Church, and then those turned into more su substantive complaints about what it means to be justified before God, and he just unleashed this firestorm that it essentially created this offshoot of the Catholic Church called the Reformation, where we now sit in this room as Protestants, Protestants against the Catholic uh, understanding of many things, but justification being the primary thing. And, um, and so as a result, we now have things like Baptists and Presbyterians and Anglicans and so many other denominations that fundamentally cut ties because of what Martin Luther started in roughly 1515, okay? Um, and the significance of that is that for the last, you know, 1,500 years-ish, well, probably we'll say 1,000 years, the last 1,000 years from that moment backwards, the Catholic Church had had such a strong hold on the Western culture. We, we call it Christendom. Um, they, had, they were the dominant cultural influence in the West. And so what they said goes. And for the Catholic Church, it was the Bible and it was tradition were ostensibly supposed to be here in terms of authority, and it ended up functionally being more like tradition, you know, had um, sort of the, the final say on how we read and think about the Bible. And, um, and so there was kind of a religious captivity, if you will. People couldn't read the Bible for themselves. It was in Latin. Not everyone spoke Latin when you got to Martin Luther's time period because you had a lot of German-speaking, French-speaking, et cetera, and they were all poor and peasant. Um, so with the Reformation, with Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and, you know, other people, um, it essentially gave the people the sense that they could begin choosing for themselves what they were going to believe about God. All right? They could begin reading the Bible because people start translating it into the language of the common man. And from there, it loosened or opened up the possibilities for people like Galileo, to suddenly say that we are not the center of the universe, the earth, right? Which is mind-blowing to have that revelation. And that then kicks off the ability for what we look back on history and say was a scientific revolution because now there's some freedom to begin making statements that do not necessarily cohere with the Catholic teaching on X, Y, and Z things. But what that means is between the Reformation, which was kind of theological freedom, and the scientific revolution, which was a new push for inquiry into the origins and the meaning of things that are not specifically rooted in the Bible or in theology or in the Catholic Church, is that people begin asking harder questions. Can we form a foundation for what it means to be a person, in this case, um, that isn't rooted in the Bible? Okay. Can we start thinking about things from the ground up, so to speak? And it wasn't that someone like Descartes was trying to, you know, reject Christianity, 
but he was trying to find another foundation on which to build a worldview from to see if this was even possible. And so he tries everything. And finally, the only thing that he could land at that gave him some certainty um, that, that, that anything was even real and possible to know was this. I think, I'm thinking right now, I'm still thinking, I can't get away from thinking, I'm trying not to think, but I'm thinking, and that's the only thing that I know that I know that I know, and so I'm thinking, if I'm thinking, therefore, I must be I, and so therefore, I must be am, so therefore, I am. I'm thinking, therefore, I am. You see how, so he roots an entire worldview in this fundamental thing that he can say that he knows, which is a fundamental shift from where everyone for the last thousand years, basically, has rooted their source of knowledge. Because we rooted our source of knowledge in a theological proposition that in the beginning, God, Genesis 1-1, and now we're shifting it to an anthropo- uh, anthropological conviction that I think, therefore I am. And so um, his entire framework was one of suspicion and doubt. You doubt everything. You, you have, um, you're suspicious of everything until you can get to the one thing that you can't be suspicious of, which is different than what some of you may feel a resonance in our own time, in our own culture today, where um, it feels like everything's you know, being deconstructed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that's to no end. There is no truth to get to the bottom of for people who are deconstructionists today. You're just deconstructing, and the reason you're deconstructing is because everything that you're deconstructing is laden with power, and it's power that's being used to abuse other people. For him, it wasn't about power. It was about truth. And so we're trying to deconstruct to get to the fundamental truth so that we can reconstruct an entire worldview. But this this fundamental suspicion, deconstruction, um, did get mutated into what we are seeing today. Okay, so you you are right to see a connection. When you get to the end of this method of doubting, then you find at the bottom a foundation of all potential knowing. You find that you are left with only the self or yourself. Hence this famous line, I think, therefore I am. Do you guys see any problems with this um, framing of what it means to be a person? It's egocentric, yes. <laughs> that is good. Um, anything else? And if you need to think no further than what you think about yourself to say, you know, one aspect that you know that you know that you know about who you are probably will help you say, this does not capture that. Tell me something about you that you feel like is fundamental to you. Yes, sir. I'm a Christian. <laughs> you're a Christian, um, which implicit in that means that you're more than something that thinks, that you also feel, right? So emotions have a place in what it means to be a fully formed person. And sometimes we might even say that emotions drive, watch out for that, um, drive um, our thinking before our thinking drives our emotions. Someone like James K. Smith, who is a theologian um, at maybe Calvin College, I'm not sure. Um, he would argue that um, we are fundamentally creatures of love, 
that before we think, before we reason, before we form rationale, we have love, we have desire. And desires produce a certain direction, an orientation of our thinking, of our longing, of our wanting, of our planning, of so many other things. And I think there's something very true about that, especially if you read Deuteronomy. Anything else that you think marks you as a person that cannot be captured by simply reducing you down to this thinking, philosophical sort of conception? I think so. I mean, I think this is also his starting point. Like he deconstructed and reduced down, and this is where he ended up. Yeah. And obviously, I mean, that's, you get to I think, therefore I am, then you can go any number of places to I love, I'm a Christian. Mm -hmm. uh, then, then you can extrapolate out from, like, okay, I, I do exist. Yeah. Uh, this, I yeah. Can, this I can know, whether it's in the Matrix or, <laughs> or whatever, you know. Like, whether it's in the Matrix. Somber, you know, the Matrix yeah. is, you know, working, uh -huh. I think, directly back to that in a way. Yeah. Uh, you know, if anybody remembers the Matrix. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, but, uh, but, yeah, I mean, from that, you know, you can, like. You can ostensibly get to some other places. Yeah, you can also go, any, you know, any number of other places. Yeah. Uh, but. Uh, I mean, it's a good, it's a good starting. It's yeah, yeah, for sure. It's not a bad starting place. The problem becomes when you get to late modernity or what people call postmodernity, where we are today in many ways. And um, even if you start with "I think," it does not grant you anything else. It does not provide a foundation for defining what love is, um, for human rights, for um, people's desire to. Um, have meaningful and purposeful lives, you know, um, for morality, for not, you know, you know, abusing and killing people at will, you know, um, for political um, uh, frameworks or economy, right? Like, it doesn't, pr it doesn't provide the deepest foundation for any of those things. Now, you can, you can sneak in through the back door some values that you attach onto that, and that's something that we call, you know, humanism or secular humanism to be specific. Um, but those those are not inherent in something like I think, therefore I am. Okay, um, let's let's keep going. Uh, so Rene Descartes, uh, super important and a lot of good things to say. So don't hear me just you know lambasting them. But um, but we do need to take objection with kind of being reduced to thinking things. Uh, next you have Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was born in 1712, lived to 78, uh, 1778, which is two years after what famous event? Well, the nation published, oh wait. <laughs> Less famous than I was thinking, more famous. The American Revolution, people. We're all sitting here today because somebody was brave enough to stand up for human rights and freedom. Um, so just a little shameless plug for freedom, everybody. Um, so Jean-Jacques Rousseau, um, he would have been a contemporary of, obviously, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, uh, you know, these great American founders, um, Benjamin Franklin. Um, and, uh, and he would have been building off the work of someone like... Um, uh, John Locke, who was a famous political philosopher, and you don't necessarily need to know all those people or anything about them, but he was forming a, uh, a philosophical political framework um, in conversation with someone like John Locke, who is the forerunner to our, um, to our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. So the political principles that framed out 
um, our country and what we think about what it means to live in political community with one another to solve our problems and what a person is, he would have been writing in conversation with them and forming a different sort of strand, if you will. So if you know anything about history, you had the American Revolution and you had the French Revolution. We're, we tend to think the American Revolution went pretty well. People tend to think that the French Revolution went pretty poorly, okay? Um, major massacres and people, you know, being, you know, drawn and quartered, who's, who started the revolution themselves, um, led to, you know, poverty and famine and some other things. And, you know, lo and behold, Jean-Jacques Rousseau was uh, the in main intellectual influence behind the French Revolution. Um, so just if for no other, you know, if that doesn't tip you off to something, then, you know, I don't know what it is. But he basically... His basic assumption is about, about human nature is that man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. Man is born free. This is a famous line um, from one of his uh, writings. Man is born free and is everywhere in chains. What he's saying is that, you know, if you were to take us, any one individual, out of society that our fundamental nature that we come into the world with is that we're born free. Okay, I'm, I'm down there. Like, I'm good with that. But society and the social sort of pressures and, um, and conceptions, what they end up doing is they end up for forcing you into change to be something other than what you are something other than what you would want to otherwise be. Um, you're now restricted by the culture and the people around you. Society is bad um, in some ways. And so, um, you know, uh, in the, the chains are, sorry, hold on. Um, for Rousseau, an inclination of the natural state of man is pity generated from, quote, moderating in each individual the activity of the love of oneself. Um, reason turns man inward and away from self-identification with his neighbor. Um, what he's saying there is that, you know, in order to begin freeing society again, you need to be able to um, step outside of yourself and look towards what is best for the society around you um, to hopefully have a, an effect and a change on, on those forces in society that would um, continue holding you in chains, okay? Um, and so I don't think that that is necessarily a helpful understanding of who we are in relation to society, you know? Like society is not a burden. It is a overflow of each individual expressing themselves in community with one another, all right? Society is not, does not exist um, because of something wrong we are doing. It exists because of something right we are doing as being made in the image of God. Okay, I, 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 we'll keep going. Um, so um, that's gonna become important here in a moment though. Um, so you have, uh, you have um, Descartes, you have Rousseau, and fast forward um, 120 years-ish, uh, and you have this guy named Jean-Paul Sartre. Um, and he is from a philosophical framework called existentialism. Has anybody ever heard of having an existential crisis? Okay, this, that's where this is coming from, this, this philosophy called existentialism. And when he thinks about the person, 
he says in his work on existentialism that there is at least one being in whom existence precedes essence. A being who exists before he can be defined by any concept and that this being is man. So he's in some ways building off of Rousseau. And just to put that quote in larger context, you have the little you know, blurb to the side where he says, man exists, turns up, appears on the scene, and only afterward defines himself. Thus, there is no human nature since there is no God to conceive it. Not only is man what he conceives himself to be, but he is also only what he wills himself to be after this thrust toward existence. So for Sartre, he is pushing back against a classical and Christian, so it's both but separate, understanding of human nature. So someone like Aristotle would, you know, basically, he would, um, he would utilize a pre-scientific scientific method <laughs> looking at all that is around him and begin taking notes and he's observing what seems to be consistent among various kinds of things. So he would begin laying out the foundation of what is a flower, for instance. And he would look at all kinds of flowers and say, what is common to all flowers? You know, and then he would do that with people and then he would categorize and put into different levels of life and existence. And then we were kind of at the top of that. Um, and so that there was some sort of identifiable human nature because you could say that humans, generally speaking, were marked by X, Y, and Z things. And so you had sort of a, um, a script in a sense. Every time, you know, a baby popped into the world, you could say that was a human because you knew what a human was based on these things. Does that make sense? So in that sense, there was human nature. We're obviously Christians. Well, Christians have a similar kind of thing, but it's rooted in theological revelation, like biblical revelation of what we are. And that had been the story for, you know, 2,000 plus years in the West, either deriving from Plato, Socrates, Plato, or Aristotle, or from Judaism slash then Christianity. And so Sartre says that, no, we can't assume that we are anything. Because when you take God out, which is he was an atheistic existentialist, so he did not believe in God, when you take God out, then you cannot assume that anything has any inherent sort of definition or meaning, especially human nature. So that's why he says, we turn up, we appear on the scene, and only afterward define ourselves. Now, I wonder if that resonates with anything that, you know, any TV or uh, movies or anything like that in pop culture that um, you may watch or have seen. Anybody think of any examples of people feeling like they can define themselves because there is no predefined definition of what they are, of what human nature is? Any examples that you can think of? It doesn't have to be movies. It can be just social trends. Well, literally any Disney princess movie <laughs> where, the, like, where the message is be true to who you are. Where the messages be true to who you are. Frozen Moana. <laughs> Frozen Moana. Any, does, it, does that ring true with anybody else in here? You, have you seen that? Noticed that? Anybody? No? no. Okay. I don't know how relevant this is or people would agree or disagree with this. I thought of Disney uh, movies were my first thought as well. Um, but I had the uh, additional thought that 
they're not necessarily defining who they are out of a um, lack of that. They're actually pushing back against what someone else is saying they should be. And then they're pushing back and saying, no, I want to define this. Uh, so we bring uh, Rousseau, the two Jeans together, <laughs> uh, Rousseau and Sartre together in that wonderful uh, piece um, of contribution from my wife, Katie. Now you see why I married her. Um, we literally, the first night we met, connected uh, over um, uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin um, in philosophy. Um, so yes, yeah, so uh, you know these Disney movies that we're talking about. Um, they the the arc of the beginning of most of these movies is that you have a character who is feeling pressured by the society around them to be something that they don't feel that they are, okay, um, or that the, to be or or to that who they feel they are they can't fully express because it's not okay in the society around them. So you think about. Um, um, uh, Mulan, for instance, uh, which is such a fascinating movie, and uh, and you have this girl who does not fit the typical you know mold for what a girl should be in Asian culture, at least according to the the film, and um, she it has a lot more in that culture masculine sort of attributes, and so she wants to do those kind of things, but she has to kind of conform to the certain image. But she knows she learns how to fight, and she learns how to use a sword, and you know that kind of stuff. And and then her dad ends up um, is about to be prescripted to go fight this battle, but he's old and you know not in good health, and so she goes and goes in his stead. But in order to do that, she has to pretend to be a man. And so pretending to be a man, she actually, you know, you see her come alive for the first time because she's able to express so many of the things that she wasn't able to express before. Um, and uh, you have that famous song where she's like looking in the pond, the koi pond or whatever. And anybody remember the lyrics off the top of their head? You don't have to sing it, but if you like the reflection song, um, you know, who is this girl I see staring back? back at me, uh, when will I, when will my reflection show who I truly am inside? Um, you could, you, yeah, and so you could go through lots of Disney movies and point this out, but it, it is the coming together of Rousseau and, um, and Sartre that society's pressuring me, but that's wrong, and I can know that's wrong because actually I am the definer of who I am. There's something else in me that is not there. Now, I love Disney movies, and our kids watch Disney movies, so I don't want to, you know, just slam on Disney movies just outright. Um, actually, you know, that tends, that narrative tends to be the first part of all these Disney movies, but there ends up being a counter-narrative at the middle to end of the Disney movies that has some redemptive element to it, which we're not going to talk about today because we are running low on time. The time is nigh. Um, so let me just take us then to, to our current moment. And this is not associated with any one person, but this is now what um, sociologist Peter Berger has called um, expressive individualism, or uh, philosopher Charles Taylor has called um, the uh, age of authenticity. And so I just want to kind of read through this as a description of where modern American or in Western society is today when it thinks about the person. And this is true probably actually for a lot of us in here, 
even as being, you know, people who love Jesus. Um, there is a few concepts that we have to work with. Number one, what um, Charles Taylor calls the buffered self. And what he means by that is that we have a, uh, in history, people tended to have a porous self, meaning that their sense of who they were was very much influenced by not just the society around them, but even supernatural kind of society of heaven, if you will, whether that's like demonic spirits or God or just a supernatural, okay? But in the modern period, we have put a hedge around our sense of identity so that um, we don't let those kinds of influences in. Um, and he calls it the buffered self. For the modern Western person, quote, the possibility exists of taking a distance from, disengaging from everything outside the mind. My ultimate purposes are those which arise within me. The crucial meanings of things are those defined in my response to them. So I determine what things mean and why they're significant. And my sense of who I am arises within me and why I exist. You then add that to what we call individualism, where he says, where Tocqueville says, and uh, so Alexis de Tocqueville, a Frenchman who came over in the 1840s and wrote this great book called Democracy in America, he says, such folk owe no man anything and hardly expect anything from anybody. They form the habit of thinking of themselves in isolation and imagine that their whole destiny is in their own hands. Each man is forever thrown back on himself alone, and there is danger uh, that he may be shut up in the solitude of his own heart. So this person looking at early America and seeing what made us different from so many others was looking and seeing this thing called individualism, where we have increasingly disconnected ourselves from other people as being in need of their help or their service, and it's about me forging my own way and pulling myself up by my bootstraps. And that marks so many of us and how we were trained to think about the world. And then you add to that a next piece, this thing called authenticity, this value that has marked our age, where Taylor says, the understanding of a life that each one of us has his slash her own way of realizing our humanity and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed from outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. Um, so you put all that together and you have um, a new person in society today who's not being formed primarily by their spiritual or religious supernatural beliefs of this other kind of unseen world. Then you have a person who thinks that we are the locus of all purpose and meaning and definition in life. And if anything important happens, it's because I make it happen. And then you have the value added on to that person that I need to be able to define who I am and what matters and what's important. And not only that, I need to be that in the world. I need to express that in the world. And that, friends, is the modern American person. This is how we think of really what it means to be a person. If I can't express my true self in a, over and against an oppressive society that wants to make me conform to something that's not truly or authentically me, then I'm not really being a full person. And so next week we'll look at maybe there's some truth in that, 
But a biblical framing of a person is so much more than that. It's in conversation with both the internal and the external. And it's so much more liberating because, well, okay, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil the punchline of next week. So any questions about that before we end and go get our kids? Were you guys like glazed over in that? I mean, were you able to follow? I need a feedback loop here. (laughs) I studied philosophy in college. That was a long time ago, Uh, many, many years ago. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. There's a, a pretty clear arc from I don't know, Descartes believed in God, Sartre, you know, you had Nietzsche. Yeah, yeah. the idea that, like, we need God. Uh, so now he's trying to, like, kind of do what Descartes did, but now there's no God. Yeah. So you're kind of like, okay, well, what is, what's the point of anything? How do we build mm-hmm. a framework? Um, and now you have, like, you know, you know, that was the 20th century. It's the 21st century. We're something completely different now, but... Um, um, but yeah, we have this yeah. stream. But I, you know, I also think like authenticity, individualism. I don't know. It's been very helpful to me and my coming up as a Christian because you get so much outside pressure from. Yeah. Uh, so like, like it can be a good thing and a bad thing. You just have to look at it in a sort of biblical way. Yeah. I don't know. Growing up in, I don't know, high school punk culture and stuff like that. I don't know. I was kind of on the fringes, but, like, it kind of, uh, I don't know, I used that as an outlet to, to be different and still pursue my faith within. Yeah. And it's okay to be different. And, yeah. Uh, in, in a world where uh, already uh, my faith wasn't really relevant. Yeah. Um, and, it, and people accepted my faith for what, you know. But the conversations were more like, like, uh, it was... It was not assumed, certainly, that Christianity or faith was important or real. Mm. That was just kind of an afterthought. Yeah. Man, after growing up in punk culture, which is pushing back against the social pressures, you have acquiesced, and now you're wearing a button-up and slacks and dress shoes, man. Like... <laughs> okay, well, I hope I was able to lay out for you... Um, a trajectory that when you arrived here at the end with me, you said, wow, like that's, that is the, the water we're swimming in. That is, there's so much of what I see going on in culture that, that is exactly coming from that. That was my goal. I may not have done that super well, so we can kind of keep talking about it if you're like still processing. But let me pray for us, and then we can go and worship together. So, Father, thank you for our time together. And, Lord, we just ask, well, first we say thank you for your presence being here with us now, and we ask that you would continue to be with us manifestly in our worship gathering, that you would empower Austin to preach um, with a fiery passion that only comes from you, and that we would be changed, and we would be confronted, and we would be convicted, and we would be comforted. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.